First Peter chapter one, as we pick up uh, our study in First Peter, uh, Gavin preached last Sunday. We kind of swapped off Sundays around the General Assembly so we could get both get prepared. Uh, my, my sermon this morning is on gospel salvation. You know, every sermon in chapter one has been on some aspect of the gospel, and uh, this morning is gospel salvation. And I've tried to build the whole service around that. Uh, our songs. Uh, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Uh, how can it be? Uh, Lord, you are more precious than silver. I even asked uh, uh, the choir sang, There is a Redeemer, because I asked John to sing it uh, this morning. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. All hymns about the wonder of salvation. Gospel salvation today. 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21. Let's hear God's word. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And it is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the day. It is your day, and we rejoice in it, we're glad in it, and we're thankful for a time to be together around your word. And we know we come with confidence, believing that this is indeed your holy and inspired word given to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, protected down through the years so that what we have is your word indeed, that it is without error, that it has full authority over our lives. And we pray this morning we would come to it with that understanding. And we would yield ourselves to it. We would learn from it. We would profit from it. We would submit to it. And we would be changed by it. And more than anything else, we would be pointed to Christ and see the glory of the salvation we have in him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Peter, uh, the author of this book, uh, had a close relationship with Jesus. In fact, he had as close a relationship with Jesus as anyone had during Jesus' time on earth. Not only was Peter an apostle, he was a member of what we know as Jesus' inner circle, the three who were the closest to Jesus, meaning that he was with Jesus in some of his most intimate situations and exposed to Jesus' most personal teaching. He was a leader of men. He was a leader among the apostles often serving as their spokesman. He was a bold follower of Jesus, affirming his allegiance to Jesus, sometimes in strong words. Remember, it was Peter who said, even if any, everyone else falls away from you, I never will. Telling Jesus he would die with him if it was necessary. But you know what happened? Peter couldn't keep his commitment. He wasn't quite as brave, quite as strong, 
as he thought he was. In fact, he did fall away. He denied that he even knew Jesus. And that that denial was not made to soldiers who might arrest him. But that denial was made to to a simple servant girl who just asked him. You know, the closer Jesus got to the cross, the farther Peter lagged behind. And to find that when Jesus was on the cross, Peter was in hiding. But two amazing things happened. One was that when the women went on that first Easter morning to the tomb and found Jesus' body missing, the angel told them, go tell his disciples and Peter. The angel wanted to make sure that the women went to Peter so that he would hear firsthand the good news of the resurrection. The other amazing thing was after the resurrection, Jesus met his apostles one day by the Sea of Galilee in the morning. They'd been out fishing. He had breakfast with them. Then after breakfast, he, he, he pulled Peter aside. And he asked Peter three times the same question. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? You see, Peter had denied Jesus three times. And Jesus gave Peter the opportunity to affirm his love for him, his commitment to him, three times as well. And both of those amazing things show us the mercy and the grace of Christ, especially the way it was manifest to Peter. Peter failed, but Jesus covered his failure. Peter fell away, but, but Jesus restored him to fellowship. And I think you have to keep that in mind as you're reading First Peter, this letter that Peter wrote that's all about salvation. Because when, when Peter talks about the wonder of being saved. And when he says, essentially in this letter, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. He talks about receiving the mercy and the grace of God. Peter's not talking about, about it in the abstract. Peter knew it. He had experienced it. He understood what it was to be saved by the grace and mercy and the power of Christ. So my message this morning is, as I said, entitled, Gospel Salvation. Because here Peter tells us about the glory of salvation, the wonder of it, and what it requires of us as believers. And he begins first in our text by describing something of our relationship to God. And he he describes that relationship two ways. Of God is our Father, and of God is our Judge. He says in verse 17, 
If you address God as Father and as Judge, if you address as Father the one who impartially judges. Back in verse 14, Peter referred to us as obedient children. Here, he talks about us addressing God as our Father. When we come to faith in Christ, we become the children of God. We are adopted into His family. We become His children. Now, adoption is an important link in what we know as the order of salvation. Unfortunately, we don't spend enough time on adoption. We don't spend nearly as much time on adoption as we do on regeneration or sanctification. But adoption is such an important part of who we are as the people of God. We are God's children and he is our father. You know, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, you pray like this, our father who art in heaven. Paul says that the Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are the children of God. And Paul says again, you have not received a spirit of slavery, but a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now we like that, don't we? We like that a lot. We like the idea of God being our Father and us being His children and all the benefits and blessings that brings into our lives, the way that our Heavenly Father loves us and the way our Heavenly Father cares for us and the way our Heavenly Father provides for us and the way our Heavenly Father protects us. Those truths delight our hearts. But notice also that that Peter describes God as... Our judge. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work. Now, we're not so excited to hear about that. It gives us pause, doesn't it? To think of God being our judge. But that is exactly what the Bible says. God is our Father, and we enjoy all the benefits of what that means. But He is also our judge. And He will hold us accountable for our actions. Now, you need to understand, this is a judgment. This judgment Peter is referring to is a judgment that believers will face. It has nothing to do with salvation other than salvation leads to good works. You see, your sins were judged on the cross with Christ. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was telling the truth, it is finished. Every penalty has been paid for your sin to accomplish your salvation. Nothing else you have to do to earn, merit, deserve your salvation Jesus paid it all. But after conversion, God calls on us to live in obedience to his word, to glorify and honor him. The Bible's clear. He will hold us accountable. 
with the way in which we have done that. He is the one who impartially judges, the Bible says, according to each man's works. Now let that sink in for just a moment. God will hold you accountable for what you've done as a believer after your conversion. It's not to determine your salvation. Let me make that clear. Not in any way to determine your salvation. That was decided on the cross. But it is to determine your rewards. God will not only look at what you have done, but why you have done it. Not just your actions, but the motives and intentions behind them. And so our relationship to God involves those two things. We must always hold them in balance. God is our Father. However, He's not an indulgent Father who spoils us with lavish gifts and lax rules, but one who will hold us accountable for our works, for what we've done in the body, whether good or bad. And so we see, first, our relationship to God. Second, Paul describes our responsibility to God. Now, my text in the New American Standard Version, and then you may wonder why I, I, I keep using this Bible. I've been using this since I went to Covenant College in 1970. Hmm. When was that? 1970. <laughs> A long time ago, folks. Because my Greek professor told me, he said, that the NASB is the most literal translation that you can find, the closest to the Greek that you can find. It's so close to the Greek, sometimes it doesn't have good English. And, and people don't like it sometimes for that reason. And, and verse 17 is kind of an example of that. Where the little translation is, if you address as father the one who impartially judges, but it's better rendered, and many of your translations probably have the word since or the word because. This is not a conditional sentence. But it's a showing result. Since you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, here's our responsibility. Conduct yourselves in fear during your stay upon the earth it's interesting isn't it our responsibility to God after our conversion involves our conduct we are not saved by works James says we prove our salvation by our works how do people know that we are committed to Christ it's not just by what we say it is by what we do is by how we live our lives before him. That's what Peter was talking about back in verse 15. Where he talked about like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves and also in all your behavior. And God calls us verse 16 saying you shall be holy for I am holy. And that's what Peter is saying here in verse 17. Since you address as father... The one who impartially judges. Or since you address God as father and judge. 
then you conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Now, this fear is not a cowering fear. It's not a cringing fear before our Heavenly Father. It's a godly fear. It's a godly fear that leads us to have honor and respect and obedience to our Heavenly Father, motivating us to live in a way that doesn't disappoint Him. You know, we all live better, don't we? If we know we have to answer to someone. If we know there's someone in our life who's going to hold us accountable. You know, marriage is good for us guys. Because we know we have a wife at home who's going to hold us accountable. Tests are good for students. Because they make you study along the way. Or else the teacher will know that you haven't been doing your work. Session meetings are good for pastors. Because I don't want to go meet with my elders every month. If I haven't been faithful in the performance of my pastoral duties. So it is with our relationship with God. He is our father to give us our sense of security but he's also our judge to give us a sense of accountability and that changes our conduct doesn't it if you know there's someone watching someone concerned and someone's going to hold you accountable for the way that you live your life it's going to make a difference and that's the way we live before God conducting ourselves in fear and honor and respect of him during our stay upon the earth. Third, Peter makes clear that our salvation is indeed all of God. Uh, we read earlier from Romans 3, and Gavin talked about how that is such a clear picture of salvation, and it is. But boy, what a beautiful picture we find of it here in verses 18 and 19. You know, our understanding of salvation by grace through faith is the fertile soil of obedience. Let me say that again. Just in case you kind of slipped off for a minute. Let me say that again. Our understanding of salvation by grace through faith is the fertile soil from which our obedience arises. And I want you to look at the way this is written. Peter in verse 17 says... Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And that conduct we find in verse 18 is based on our knowledge of the gospel. He says, knowing certain things. Well, what are those things? That you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Those verses focus upon redemption, don't they? I asked the choir to sing, there is a, what? There's a redeemer. And here Peter's talking about this wonderful thing we know as redemption. To redeem means to buy back was 
written in 1 Peter, this letter that he wrote in the context of rampant slavery. Now, slavery in those days didn't have the same connotations necessarily that it has today. There were millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. Many of them were treated well. Many of them held positions of responsibility. Many of them weren't treated well. For a slave to be set free, there had to be a process of redemption. He had to be bought out of his slavery. Someone had to to pay the price to redeem that slave. The, The slave could do it himself. He had the means to do it. Or a third party could buy, purchase the slave's redemption. And redemption was a wonderful thing because it it set the slave free. And that's why the Bible talks about salvation being redemption. It sets us free. God has paid the price to set you and me free from the bonds and the clutches of sin and of death. And redemption is one of those themes that runs all the way through the Bible. What was the exodus? If it wasn't God's redemption of his people from their slavery and their bondage to Pharaoh and to Egypt. And what was the price of that redemption? It was the blood of a lamb. Indicated by the smearing of the lamb on the doorpost. God had inflicted nine plagues upon Egypt, each one with the intention of changing Pharaoh's heart and so they would obey God's word to let his people go. And after each nine of those plagues, Pharaoh hardened his heart and said, No. It was the tenth plague. The death of the firstborn that finally broke Pharaoh's will and by which he allowed the people to leave. Someone died in each home in Egypt if it wasn't covered by the blood. When that death angel passed through, it caused the redemption of God's people. And they were spared by the blood the Passover lamb. And they had to choose a lamb that was spotless and without blemish. And that lamb, that lamb was used for the sacrifice. Don't you see? The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Lamb of God whose blood was shed and is poured upon us our Hearts are smeared with his blood so that we are redeemed and saved and set free. It is Christ who redeems us. And I want you to notice how that blood is described. It is what? It is precious blood. I've told you before there's a movement in some of the mainline churches to change the hymnals. 
talked about not being offensive earlier and you know it's kind of offensive to sing about blood it's kind of gruesome isn't it and so if you go to some of the mainline denominations you open up their hymnal you won't find the hymn nothing but the blood or there is a fountain filled with blood or alas did my savior bleed folks if the if the blood of Christ is precious to you you don't take it out of the hymnal you don't avoid preaching it from the pulpit and you don't back away from telling people look if you're not covered by the blood you don't have salvation because we are redeemed Peter says with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ he just said in verse 18 what we're not redeemed by we're not redeemed by anything material not redeemed by silver or gold just so you'll know that's why I chose another song this morning. Lord, you are what? More precious to me than silver or gold. Why? Because silver and gold can never redeem me. They can't purchase my salvation. Only you can do that. We're not redeemed by silver or gold. You can't buy your way to heaven. Nor were the Jews saved by their futile way of life Peter says in the verse 18 that was inherited from their forefathers what does that mean that means you aren't saved by religion or religiosity because some of Jesus strongest politically incorrect words were directed toward the Jewish religious leaders who were all show and no substance, who were handing down to their generation behind them a futile way of life because they couldn't save. And then fourth, we see the security of our salvation. I'm way over time and I apologize. I'll be brief here. Our confidence... Our confidence in our salvation comes from the fact that God has planned our salvation. Folks, we get get scoffed at in the Reformed community because we believe that God's sovereign over all of life, including salvation. But it's what the Bible teaches. And I would submit to you this morning that your confidence and your redemption your confidence and your salvation is based on one thing. It has nothing to do... Well, be careful here. It's not all about your faith. It's not about what you've done. It's all about what God has done. And it's interesting to me that Peter makes it clear, folks, your salvation didn't begin the day you embraced Christ. It began before the foundation of the world. What is... What is Paul say in Ephesians chapter 1, God chose us in Christ when? Before the foundation of the world. What does Peter say in chapter 1 of our, our, our book here in, in verse 2? 
We are chosen according, he says, to the foreknowledge of God. And now in, here in verse uh, uh, 20, he says, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Our confidence and our redemption is the fact that God planned this thing long before you and I had any idea that we would ever be born in this world. And now he unfolds it. That's, that's the glory of the gospel. It's God unfolding his eternal plan of salvation. His redemption of his people. And that gives us such great confidence, doesn't it? Where he goes on to tell us in the text that Christ has appeared in time to do his Father's will for your sake. And it's through him you are believers in God and that God raised him from the dead so that your hope and your faith are in God. That, my friends, is gospel salvation. You are redeemed with something precious, with the blood of Christ. The blood refers to life. There wasn't anything different about Jesus' blood except the blood represents life. And Jesus' blood is precious because He shed it for you and for me. Gospel salvation is the fact that the full price has been paid by Christ. And you can be confident because Jesus paid it all for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word, for the glory of the gospel. And we find great confidence and hope in it today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.